everyone. Welcome to Adventures in Autism, episode 37. I am Megan Carranza. Thank you so much for coming to listen. If this is your first episode, welcome. So happy to have you. And if you've been listening, thank you so much for coming back and just following along on this journey. Um, And thank you so much to everyone who has reached out and written messages. I have heard from many new listeners this past week, and I just love connecting with you guys. That really is my favorite part of doing all of this. Um, So keep those messages coming and reviews. If you are enjoying the show, I would be so appreciative if you would leave a review, especially on Apple Podcast. That really does help people to find the show. So today's episode, I am so excited about. I am speaking with Haley Moss, who you might be familiar with. She's gotten quite a bit of media coverage these past couple months. She is Florida's first openly autistic lawyer. She is so much more than that, though. (laughs) She is also an author and an artist and just an amazing advocate and activist within the autism community. I was just blown away by her. She is honestly incredible, just like a total dynamo. (laughs) I I learned so much listening to her and I know you guys will feel the same. She actually even gave me a, a surprise that I was not aware of, or I shouldn't call it a surprise, but there, there was something that she told me about myself in this episode that was surprising to me, um, but in a really exciting way, a really cool way. So definitely listen for that. And without further ado, here is my conversation with Haley. Hello, Haley. Hey, Megan. Hi, welcome to Adventures in Autism. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to chat with you. I was telling you before we started, I feel like I have so many questions from you, and I'm sure as we keep talking, there'll be even more that will arise. Um, But for those who are maybe not familiar, Haley is, as your title would say, the first openly autistic lawyer in the state of Florida, but you are also so much more than that. You are an artist, you are an author, you're an advocate, an activist, and just an all around like amazing human. So I'm just so excited to get to chat with you. Um, so if you, if you will kind of take us back, like we were saying before, I know you got diagnosed early. You were only three years old. You might not like remember a ton from that time, but just kind of like childhood and like what things were like for you. And like something I'm always curious about, like, did you, did you realize that you were like, I mean, obviously you wouldn't know like on the spectrum, but how was that for you in terms of like, the way that you process things as a child. Okay. So I think it's best to start at the beginning here because there's a lot to unpack. Yeah, sure. (laughs) So here's what I do know about the early, early years is that I was nonverbal up until I was probably about four. I do know that I was kindly asked to leave my preschool. I cried and screamed everywhere we went because that was my only way of communicating. But I was able to read these large jigsaw puzzles so there was definitely something going on and that's what led to getting an autism diagnosis in the first place with me so Mm -hmm. you also have to remember when I was diagnosed it was kind of a different time so the late 90s were not quite what it is now and it wasn't as autism wasn't as prevalent as it is today either so it was definitely something to think about back then and the resources weren't as plentiful either Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And even for your parents, like they were probably, I mean, I feel like autism is still kind of a head scratcher, but I mean, for, for them, yeah. Like, like you said, in, in the late nineties, um, there, there, we just didn't know as much. It's not even that we didn't know as much. It wasn't as prevalent and there just wasn't as much out there. So even when we think about mainstream media and we can pretty much picture what autism looks like, at least in a stereotypical way right now mm-hmm. is the, the society stereotype is a young boy but Mm -hmm. when I was a kid what the only thing people thought of was Rain Man yeah right exactly although I'll be honest like when my son was diagnosed this was six years ago well I'm sorry he's six years old he got diagnosed like a couple years ago I Mm -hmm. I really knew nothing about autism I had nobody in my life that was on the spectrum it was just autism was not on my radar and mm-hmm. Rain Man was really all I knew. <laughs> like it really, like, I, I didn't know I had, I mean, I needed such an education, which I mean, I'm still getting that, but it's so mm-hmm. interesting you say that because now there is so much more, even just in the media 
about autism and like I, I've said it before but I think we're like shifting in the right direction but mm-hmm. we still have like a ways to go oh <laughs> uh, we have a lot I think we have a long way to go yeah. still but I I have faith that we're gonna get there I think it just takes time to catch up to get where we're supposed to be absolutely yeah so okay so you were maybe a little bit more of a challenge as a child it sounds like um mm-hmm. then did you start with therapy at that time or like when you obviously you're you're verbal now so (laughs) when did you become verbal you would hope that as an attorney that I would be verbal but you sound very verbal so I think you got that (laughs) I I I do really like to talk to people I think it's a lot of fun even though I find it very exhausting but with autism I get to talk about stuff I love so I get to kind of talk like special interests and things that interest me so it's not so much work as normal social situations yeah that is that aside I started talking when I was about four, but a lot of it was just echolalic speech. So probably the first time that I think when we talk about novel speech or stringing together sentences and stuff in the way that we think of speech generally or like what people think is a more normal type speech pattern, probably about the first grade. And then in first grade and like the early years of, you know, elementary school or even all through elementary school, I mean, it sounds like academically you didn't necessarily have um, a delay or did you? Academically, I was fine my entire school career. I did. I always did well in school. Okay. So I, I was mainstreamed at about kindergarten, pre-K, four age. I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. Yeah. But, okay. but I did really well in school. So that was never where my real issues were. A lot of my struggles in school were mostly social. Okay. Can you touch on that a little bit? That I didn't and still struggle to make friends. <laughs> I, I, th- I think that's pretty straightforward. Yeah, for sure. I feel like that's hard for, for any kids at that age. Did you have a hard time? Like, um, I remember li- I heard another, another interview with you and you were talking about how you were more friends with like boys. Cause it was easier mm-hmm. for you to kind of pick up on their social cues. It's um, so true though. Yeah. Which I thought was really interesting that you had said that. Mm-hmm. I also thought the boys re- and I also had more in common with the boys. So I was, playing Pokemon with them. I was tra- <laughs> trading Yu-Gi-Oh cards and stuff. Like I had more in common with them and friendship is a lot simpler. I realized that even in my adult life, I'm still friends with a lot of guys too. And even through high school and college, because it was just easier. The cues were easier. It was less visual. Some There was a little bit less judgment. It was just easier to understand, I think, and to make connect with others. While girls, like when you're in adolescence and stuff and it's all the makeup and the beauty and all this stuff. And it's like, well, I don't know if that interests me. So it was, it was definitely difficult. Yeah. Well, I can even imagine too, because like, I mean, girls, there, there is a lot of like just cattiness and Mm -hmm. I mean like it's, and I feel like it's, it's difficult, you know, as a human, regardless if you're on the spectrum or not to navigate those kind of relationships. So I I thought that made a lot of sense when you were saying that, that you kind of like, I mean, I think it's great that you have, you realize too, like, Hey, I like hanging out with these guys. So I'm going to hang out with them because I think a lot of girls probably feel like, Oh, I need to like fit into these like societal norms. And it's like, that's not mm-hmm. doing any service to you, you know? Absolutely. I mean, I tried to do that too. So I looked at even in my middle school and high school years a little bit, kind of like being a secret agent. So <laughs> I tried to know as much as I can about anything possible or that was cool. So then even if I had to talk to the girls or if I wanted to try to be friends with other girls, cause I did want friends who were girls. I didn't think that was something too crazy to wish for, really. Mm-hmm. So I knew everything there was to know about, like, Twilight. I would read Seventeen magazine. I would do anything I could just have some kind of straw to grasp onto mm-hmm. to make sure that I understood, even if I couldn't care about it or I didn't care about it. Honestly, I didn't care about Bella and Edward becoming vampires together. <laughs> like, I, I, I didn't care. But I was You're bringing me to, back. <laughs> but, but, I, but I was, like, the first one who saw the movie, and I had – an opinion on it and that gave me what to talk about with other girls because it was that simple for me and it wasn't at the very least it was enough that I wouldn't get in trouble like bullied or I wouldn't have any like trouble socially that it would be even more difficult than just being kind of awkward quiet not really making friends there's a difference between that and I think being a bullying target mm-hmm. so I feel like for me at least having enough of those social skills or enough of that mask so to speak just to do those couple things or have enough rote knowledge that you know, you didn't seem like you were too in your own world. Mm-hmm. That was enough to get me past being bullied as we think of bullying. Gotcha. Exclu- exclusion is a whole other ball game. 
Oh, for sure. Yeah. I feel like that's another thing too, that you, you hear about more and more now, like for a long time, it was all, you know, like the anti-bullying campaigns, which I think is great. But like you said, especially with girls, I feel like exclusion is kind of another form of bullying that like goes Mm -hmm. Exactly. Like I was never bullied in the traditional sense, but I was certainly left out of a lot of things and certainly not invited to the social events or I'd be the only one in the friend group who did not get invited to the birthday party. So what I experienced as what we think of as bullying, yeah, I might not have gotten kicked in the face or I might not have been called names, but I was certainly excluded even in our friend group. So I definitely did have more, I think it's more of a subtle version of bullying now that I think back on it a little bit more because I'm like, I'm very quick to say, oh, I wasn't bullied. But when I think about it, I'm like, well, exclusion in a sense kind of is. And when you see it even in adulthood, it just looks differently. Mm-hmm. Is people will exclude you, but they mean well. That's what's really yeah. complicated to me. Is they'll exclude you and go, oh, well, we didn't think you could handle it. Or we thought it might be too loud for you. Or it might be too much of a sensory challenge for you. And it's like, you could have invited me and let me make that decision instead. You just flat out didn't include me. Yeah. No, I feel like that's, that's so unfair because a, like you said, mm-hmm. you, you want to make the decision for yourself or B it's like, sometimes you don't know until you try. And so it's like, mm-hmm. if you don't even have that option, that's just mm-hmm. like, it's really unfair. Um, that's so, that's so interesting that you say that. Mm-hmm. I know you were kind of talking before too, about junior high and those kind of transformative years. And um, you, you are also an author. Do you want to talk about the book that you wrote? Absolutely. So the first book I wrote is middle school, the stuff nobody tells you about. I wrote it during my freshman year of high school, actually. And I went to three middle schools in three years. So I've kind of seen the good, the bad and the ugly. And I've, <laughs> I struggled enough making friends and all that. And there's things that I learned that did help me, such as when I was telling you about, for instance, Twilight. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to be able to share my knowledge. I spoke at a conference right after the eighth grade. And at that conference, I was the youngest one and the only girl. And what I had to say really jived with people. And I was really excited to get to share my experience and thought, well, if I can make this awkward adolescent transition period, that's difficult no matter who you are. Better for somebody than sharing my story is absolutely 100% worth it. And hopefully I can give some tips and tricks along the way, which I really enjoyed doing. And then when I got to college, or at least when I was looking to apply to college, there was no resource out there that was written by people on the spectrum for people on the spectrum as I'm sure you know with a lot of the autism conversation right now and even in the mainstream media and public public sphere a lot of it is dominated by parents and professionals that's not to say that it's a problem it's it's a problem in the fact that people on the spectrum should be heard and talking about our lives too Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying that only people on the spectrum should be talking about it. I think that this is a group effort to do better for our kids and our adults. Mm-hmm. But I do think even when I was looking in college and all I saw was stuff from parents and professionals, it didn't seem right. I felt like, okay, I want to hear from someone like me who went to college, what they thought, what worked for them, what didn't work for them. Mm-hmm. So I tried my best to fill that void, actually. That's amazing. I think that's a really good point that, like you said, so much is targeted to mm-hmm. parents. And mm-hmm. obviously for me as a parent, I think that's great. But I feel like, yeah, for, for you as an individual on the spectrum, like that's not really relatable mm-hmm. for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I can see where, you know, that would be a challenge. Um, I love that you just like took it upon yourself and to be like, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and, and write this for myself. So writing like both books, I mean, with middle school and with college, were you, is it almost like a, like a how-to book or were you really like drawing on your own experiences? A little bit of both. So I'm happy. I always like to give advice. I like to share my experiences of what worked and what didn't and also give advice. Mm-hmm. I think that's really smart. That's kind of what I try to do, but I also never want to come off like I'm like a know-it-all. So I always will, I'll tell people like, well, this is what we did, but like, just because this worked for us doesn't mean you have to do it. <laughs> I do that every time I get asked to give advice right now because a lot of parents will ask me what to do with their, like, five-year-old or whatever. And I am I say, this is what we did, but every child is so different that what's wor- what worked for me might not work for you. Yeah. What worked for our family might not work for your family. There's all sorts of different factors that go into it. So I'm not quick to give specific advice to a person, but I'm happy to speak in generalities and say this is what worked for us. But there's some other options out there, too. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's the way to go. Because it's like there there are people that it's like, obviously, you, you want to help them and you want to share your experiences. Mm-hmm. 
I never want anyone to be like, you know, thinking that like, oh, she knows everything because I definitely don't. <laughs> oh, I, I don't know anything. I don't know everything either. I don't know what it's like. I genuinely can tell you, I don't know what it's like to be a parent of a child on the spectrum. So You're I don't so- understand. I mean, my experience is as an autistic person is definitely different than your experience as the parent mm-hmm. of an autistic child, mm-hmm. especially with this generational difference. I mean, your, your child's growing up in a different world than I did. Yeah, absolutely. I still think it's so valuable, though, to hear the perspective from an individual themselves, because, you know, I mean, my son, even though he is, he's completely different as anybody on the spectrum would be different. It's Mm -hmm. something that, you know, we, we have this common thread. And I feel like that's what's so amazing about doing the podcast is like everyone I talk to has such a different story where they're, you know, a parent, a professional, an individual, we still have this like common link. And I think that that is like such a beautiful thing to like make those connections with. Mm-hmm. And I'm so I, I totally agree with you. It's just how can we join forces to do better for everybody? I think by doing doing everything that we're as much as we can by by raising our voices and you know especially like my son is nonverbal, so it's like mm-hmm. I, I am you know I'm I'm his voice, I'm his mouthpiece. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm so happy to do that, and I just want to make him proud in every way possible. And that means mm-hmm. me at least, you know, raising awareness and advocating. I think you are doing incredible things in that space. Um, so, which I'm so appreciative for. Thank you. Yes. So tell me then, cause obviously you're a lawyer. I mean, that, <laughs> like, so academics for me, it, it was a struggle and like always has been a struggle. So that sounds just like another like realm to me. Incredible. <laughs> it definitely was, but I had fun with it because I want, I knew that I wanted to be a lawyer because lawyers do a lot of writing and a lot of talking. And okay. I knew no matter what I was going to do with my life, no matter what, profession I went into I had to help other people Mm -hmm. I've always been raised to give back I always felt very blessed to have the village that I did so my family the professionals the teachers friends whoever I did come and go throughout my life even is I had an amazing village raise me so I feel really compelled to give back and be part of someone else's village that's a lot of why I do advocacy Mm -hmm. but also lawyers have the potential to make a difference every day I think so often we have this misconception that lawyers are the villain of the story mm-hmm. is that we see lawyers as these greedy characters on TV or whatever. And it's just not true. I mean, lawyers do a lot of great work. They're the ones mm-hmm. sometimes that are at the front lines that are getting things changed around here. Mm-hmm. They're sticking up for people who otherwise wouldn't have rights. There's so many different ways that you can use a law degree to make a difference. Even if you're not practicing law in mm-hmm. the traditional sense, I think that's something that gets misconstrued a lot about lawyers is there's so much you can do, whether it's in politics in policy in some other creative field or just practicing or doing pro bono work or working in the nonprofit realm. There's just so much that you can do to give back. And we, as a profession, genuinely have the potential to make a difference every single day. Absolutely. I think it's so great that you touched on that. My, my cousin is actually a lawyer and he, so the company he has is called rock and roll law. So that should tell you it's, he's not a very like serious kind of a lawyer he's a really fun Mm -hmm. lawyer and now he actually does a lot more like trainings with other lawyers but just like you said it's not always like you know the slimy guy in the suit like trying to (laughs) crook off for the the crime Mm -hmm. committed um like you said and and I actually Mm -hmm. had another mom on the podcast a couple months back who's a lawyer and she does a lot of like amazing advocacy Mm -hmm. work and is an activist in her community working for uh, rights for for women but also autism and like you said there there is such a a a need for that and lawyers have have a lot of power in that space absolutely you want to know what a small world this is so i have my email inbox open and i actually have something from rock and roll law for to get my cle's and learn about music copyright law oh my gosh that so that is my cousin jim jesse if you're listening, i was gonna say i was gonna say it's from jim jesse at rock and roll law jim jesse is my cousin so yeah he does a lot of like trainings for lawyers that's hilarious okay so yeah he's he's doing one live and in person (laughs) here in florida on may 17th but i'm not in town and it's also 225 dollars in case you were wondering Oh. I can send you a photo of this after we're done. That is so funny. Okay, well, I know he does listen. So, Jim, what up? We're giving you a shout out. That is hilarious. Oh my gosh. It is a really it is such a small world and I until I started the podcast, I don't even think I realized that, but it's like the connections that you make with mm-hmm. people 
it's honestly like mind blowing sometimes. That's that's hilarious. That's crazy. Um, well, if you get an opportunity, he's a he's a great guy. So if you need to take a class from at some point, I do need to eventually get some of my credits, but that's not. <laughs> The first thing on my back burner right now, I still need to do my new lawyer ones because yeah. when you're a first year attorney, you have to take a class about basically being a first year attorney and being a professional and knowing what resources are available to you. Gotcha. Gotcha. Then, then maybe we will move on to rock and roll. Okay. Rock and roll law is very important. So don't forget about it. <laughs> um, so tell me then like, at least like throughout, you know, your, your, I don't even know all the schooling that goes into becoming a lawyer. I'm imagining it is intensive. Mm-hmm. Was that like difficult for you to navigate or was that because academics are kind of your strong suit? Was that just like no big deal for you? I mean, academically, I think law school is a whole other ballgame. So because you asked about the schooling that goes into it. So Mm -hmm. you have your regular undergraduate degree, which you kind of need to have. And then there's three years of law school. So it's basically graduate school, but you know, everyone's Mm going to try to become a lawyer. And then at the end, after you graduate law school, you have to take the bar exam. So mm-hmm. every state has a bar exam and that's what you do to get your law license. So you have to pass this test that everybody knows is like really crazy hard. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's the nice way to put it. I'm, I'm trying yeah. to be nice about talking about the bar exam because it really was three months of my life that was incredibly grueling and that I'm very glad I don't have to do again. Oh, I, I imagine it's just, a... that's so crazy. Yeah. It's, so, it's one of the few times in academics that being on the spectrum was really, really great because you really have to settle into routine. And as you know, some of us on the spectrum love routine. Mm-hmm. So it was really easy to settle into having a consistent routine every day, day in and day out for, for like that study. three months. Oh yeah. yeah. Cause if, if you didn't, you would feel the effects and you would get behind really quickly. But I knew it every day was basically like, mm-hmm. yep. Nine to five, yeah. this and that I'm going to do this at this time. And I'm going to take lunch at noon and I'm going to do this. And it was very like by the book. Good for you. Yeah. I think that's a really good point that, like you said, it's like, there's obviously autism comes with challenges, but there's some, some definite, you know, strings that come from it too. And mm-hmm. that that's something that for you, like you could just turn that into a positive. Exactly. Like, yeah, standardized tests are hard no matter who you are, I think, but also knowing that I have a system to do the best I can that mm-hmm. works for my brain is what especially at that point because I feel like legal education generally and I'm very critical of this is it's not designed for all types of learners Mm -hmm. so I'm usually very visual and most of legal education if you've ever seen Legally Blonde as well it's very auditory because they're calling on you (laughs) and they're just talking and there's nothing really not a lot of visual input which is very hard for me to Mm -hmm. learn from so I had to kind of adapt and figure out how can I make this as visual as possible so that I don't feel lost and that every day I don't feel frustrated So when you think about education like that, I think that's, it's not so much is the academics hard. It's how do we make it that education is accessible for all types of learners? The material doesn't have to get easier or harder depending on that, Mm -hmm. but we do have to somehow accommodate all types of learners. So yeah, yeah, that it's not about the content so much, but making sure that whatever the content is, is accessible to all types of learners, whether they means you need more time to process it or it's auditory or visual or whatever your learning style is or maybe a mix of everything mm-hmm. I think that's the thing with education generally especially when we talk about neurodiversity and different types of brains is how do we accommodate different types of brains to make it accessible for all learners because even in neurotypical people some people are very visual some people not so much and I think it makes it easier if we end up making material accessible to all types of learners yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head because like I know for myself personally, I am, you know, neurotypical, but I also am dyslexic. I was diagnosed with dyslexia when I was um, in sixth grade and that I was like 11 and that was a long time to go. Mm-hmm. People not realizing that I was dyslexic because mm-hmm. <laughs> all you know- elementary school, it was like, well, Megan's not applying herself. She's not trying hard enough. And I would be like, but I am trying. I'm trying. So when we finally realized that out, and then it was like, I, I was able to have the mm-hmm. extra tools and resources to kind of move past that. Now it's like, it's still something I deal with, but it's not like as big of a struggle as it was. Um, mm-hmm. But like you said, I, I had a really hard time when it was just like, you know, reading something and then having to like absorb that. And mm-hmm. I know for me, like not, this is not anywhere close to the bar exam, but I am an esthetician. When I had to take like my state boards, my licensing, 
that mm-hmm. was like my version of the bar exam because it was so mm-hmm. hard for me to like study all the material and you I don't know like for me it was like they, there's all these different versions of the test but like you don't know what you're gonna get so it's like you have to just yep everything and have it all in there and like my brain yeah like it was gonna explode so I mm-hmm. that speaks so so much to my heart because I feel like that was something that I personally struggled with so much and like obviously you know, having my son and he does have some developmental and, and cognitive delays as well. Mm-hmm. And I just think so much about like the way that we, that we teach kids. I think it's getting better. Again, I think it's shifting in the right direction, but I just think we still have such a way to go. We definitely do. And I think glossed over something in your personal experience. The fact that you do have a learning disability and are dyslexic, you actually are neurodiverse. You're not actually neurotypical. Oh, I love that. Thank you. You're actually neurodiversity. Yes. I I think the interesting thing with neurodiversity, and this is my biggest criticism of it, because I am a big proponent of neurodiversity, but my biggest criticism of it is I feel like the autism community tends to co-opt it a little bit too much. So neurodiversity Mm -hmm. actually includes ADHD, learning disabilities, certain psychiatric disabilities, intellectual disabilities, and also people who had like a stroke or some other brain injury because it's different types of brains. Your brain, by virtue of you being dyslexic, does not work and have the same operating system as someone who might not have any of those conditions that I mentioned. That is news to me, and I'm excited about it. I, I love neurodiversity. <laughs> I look, always refer look, it up, look it up. Look yeah. it up later, and you'll, you'll definitely feel better about it because there's a whole group of people, and even and some of the people in neurodiversity that I've gotten to connect with especially like on Twitter and stuff are people with ADHD and some of the stuff that they share is valuable to us because I also struggle with executive function which is part of autism but also overlaps with ADHD it's just having a different neurotype than the norm so your brain just works different than what we think is our standard operating system yeah I I knew that ADHD was kind of in that same category with neurodiversity because like you said there is a lot of overlap with autism and ADHD Mm -hmm. Um, and it's a really common like secondary diagnosis I know for a lot of people on the spectrum so Mm -hmm. but I did not even realize that as someone who is dyslexic that I would be considered neurodiverse I love it I think the more you know yes oh my gosh the more you know my friend and I say that all the time that's so funny yeah I think that neurodiversity for me that was like a term that I I just kind of learned after having Mm -hmm. and and being kind of like a part of this autism community and I learn something new all the time especially doing the podcast and it's like speaking to people like you who teach me all these amazing things it it really is it is the more you know because you don't know what you don't know Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely exactly yep I just looked it up just to be certain dyslexia is indeed neurodiversity so that we just have to accept and accommodate different brain structures so yep you're you're part of the club I love it oh my gosh I'm part of the club that's welcome to the welcome to the neurodiverse squad oh Haley thank you for letting me in this this club I'm so excited (laughs) I mean I'm not the like gatekeeper of it or anything but I think you'd need to know that you are part of it and I feel like celebrate celebrate it man yes I feel like you're at least like on the board of the neurodiversity club so I appreciate it I mean I just I just think that all types of brains need to be accepted and we need to do better for everybody so not even just autism I think when you think of anything that has a different brain profile we we could be doing better and education is the front line of that too and the workplace yes absolutely I feel like that's so important to say because I know at least for me a lot of people that I talk to about autism people who you know don't have a child in the spectrum when I explain to them that I'm like yeah it is actually a neurological disorder like some people don't even realize that like they don't even know where like where it stems from you know what I mean Mm -hmm. I mean it's developmental and neurological but I think the biggest one that the biggest misconception is some people lumping in as mental illness but it's not mental illness yeah oh for sure yeah no I but there's people who think it is and it's like you were a little bit misguided yes definitely oh there's so much like misconceptions about autism that Mm -hmm. I'm happy to be like I said I'm I'm still learning but I'm happy to be educating people because I think that like we were saying before there we're we're shifting in that right direction but there is still so far to go and you know just spreading that awareness and educating I think is like just the best thing that you can do because people Mm -hmm. people who have these misconceptions it's like you, you're. It's not going to change unless somebody points them in the right direction, and I mm-hmm. think that hopefully that way we can, you know, create a bigger change overall. Mm-hmm. Um. So tell me then. Obviously, 
so we, you're an author, you're a lawyer, you're also an artist, which I would love to hear mm-hmm. from art. Absolutely. So I always love to draw and paint. And it used to be, at least for me, it still is actually my kind of escape from social situations and stress in the real world. So I love to do bright colors. I love doing anime. So I love doing things that are bright and happy and cheerful. And I also love using art as a way to help raise money and awareness and acceptance in our community. So I'm always happy to donate locally and throughout just to make sure that we're helping to fund things and services and what we actually need. And I'm happy to do that. And it's something that I really enjoy with my art because I have the best time making it. Somebody gets something cool to hang on their wall and we get to help a great cause. That's amazing. I feel like I am, I'm not an artist, but I'm just like a, like, I like to like craft and be like creative in that way. And when you said you have the best time doing it, I like, that is such like a, like a cathartic thing for me when I can like Mm -hmm. just put my all into like, I love when like my kids are having birthdays and something I can just like work on all these little like crafty decorations. Mm -hmm. I need that creative outlet. Even the podcast. Me too. Yeah. I feel like. Exactly. We're not much different, you know. (laughs) Well, we are both neurodiverse, so that's definitely something. And that um, you need that creative outlet. Like, you need to somehow keep your brain busy so you don't get overwhelmed and want to shut down and all that other stuff. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, no, that creative outlet, I think, for, for someone who, like, when, when you have that creative-type personality, it really is, like, it's such it's such an important component. And I know, like, mm-hmm. for me, like, there's times when I feel, like, stressed or something. If I put that in into that energy into something creative, it just makes me feel so much better. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, well, I feel like we just talked about so many things. The other thing I wanted to ask you about, though, is, and, I, and this is something, again, like since starting the podcast, I had always known that autism was more commonly diagnosed in boys. But it's interesting, mm-hmm. since I've started the podcast, like so many of the listeners that have come to me or like guests in the past are, are people who have sons, um, you know, little boys. And I have mm-hmm. seen that firsthand that like at least the people that are reaching out to me, there's, there's so many more boys. And then every now and then I'll have an episode with a girl mom and all the girl moms are like, yay, where do you think like, cause I know like just the misconceptions about girls in the spectrum is uh-huh. it's difficult to kind of, kind of explain that. So where, where do you think like there is that kind of misconception with like little girls being diagnosed and sort of like the way they present differently? Like, how does that, how do you deal with that? Okay, lots of tone pack here totally. too. Totally. Yeah. So <laughs> I I think what happens with girls is we get overlooked because a lot of the criteria for diagnosis I think are actually written with boys in mind. Mm-hmm. So girls and girls also have more coping skills and ha- are better usually at masking and otherwise passing for neurotypicals. So it's easier to pass as shy or just anxious or something mm-hmm. else. And it's not always what the interest is. It might be the vast amount of knowledge about that interest. So girls do present a little bit differently, but it's still the same stuff. Mm-hmm. I think we just aren't trained to look for it. And I think that we don't expect to look for it because girls do have these other behaviors. So a lot of boys that get diagnosed, especially when they're a little bit older, like six and seven and stuff, they're more just, dis- they might be seen as disruptive or they might just not be get, get, they might be getting bullied or whatever while girls just might be shy or whatever mm-hmm. or in their own world more to speak. So What happens with a lot of girls and women that I know is they get diagnosed later in life or they figure out they're autistic later in life. So they find out in adulthood, they find out online, they self-diagnose, they get misdiagnosed. So they go through the laundry list of other diagnoses and then realize they don't quite fit or they get diagnosed when they become moms of kids on the spectrum and realize, wow, okay, so my son was just diagnosed and that sounds a lot like me. Mm Mm-hmm. I have a couple friends that had that is that their young sons are diagnosed and they realized, Oh my God, they have that aha light bulb moment. And they mm-hmm. go, I'm on the spectrum. No wonder he is. <laughs> I had another mom on recently who that was exactly what happened with her was she, she's like, I always knew that I was maybe like a little bit different, but like you said, she was really good at like masking and she had older sisters and she's mm-hmm. like, I just kind of like followed suit with what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Even if it didn't necessarily feel, you know, completely natural to me, but then when her son was diagnosed, that led her to seek her own diagnosis because she realized that a lot of the things that he was doing, she still did, or she was still like suppressing. Um, I think that's mm-hmm. really a really good point. Something that I always wonder too, though, because like I feel like with little girls, especially you know, if they have like those moments where they're 
maybe having a meltdown, I feel like it's easier to, for people mm-hmm. to kind of pass off and be like, oh, she's just dramatic. She's just sensitive. Because those are like those societal norms that we're used to. Exactly. Yeah. And then it's like when you really peel back the layers, it's like, well, like you said. Meltdown for- is a, meltdowns, are, meltdowns are not fun. I wish that was being dramatic. Right. <laughs> but meltdown, like if you, like I have to tell neurotypical people this all the time, is that a meltdown is more like a panic attack than, you know, a tantrum or being dramatic or whichever term of art you're choosing to Mm -hmm. dress it up as Mm -hmm. if you've ever had a panic attack or you're someone with anxiety you know what that feels like and you can't control it and it's scary Mm -hmm. that's a lot like what a meltdown is you can't control it your body's tired of fighting a sensory overload or being or so frustrated that it just involuntarily like nope goodbye yeah that's a really good way to describe it and then you have to and then you eventually come out of it and you're just tired yeah I think that's the best way to say it. you're just like at least for me if I come out of a meltdown like that or have come out it's like I don't want to talk to anyone I just want to be left alone just you know mm-hmm. one because it's like, it's scary it's kind of scary like I don't have a lot of them in my adult in my adult life but when I have had them in my adult life it's scary yeah you and I and for my friends with anxiety, I'm like, it does sound a lot like panic. When you tell me about your pa- you having a panic attack, it sounds very, very similar. Except in a meltdown, you don't think you're going to die. Yes. Yeah. I- my friends who've had panic attacks, that seems to me to be their key differentiator is that they have this, I'm going to die feeling or my heart's going to beat out of my chest. And I'm like, I might not have that, but everything else sounds pretty similar to meltdown. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's a really good way to describe it. Because like. I, I can imagine that with a meltdown and like you said afterward that mm-hmm. you're like tired it's just like completely exhausting because I know like mm-hmm. I, I mean that's not something that I deal with or even really panic attacks but there's mm-hmm. definitely times when it's like I just get overwhelmed and it's like you know when, when you're crying and upset and then afterward you're like mm-hmm. just I feel like I could sleep for a month now <laughs> like it's just like you kind of <laughs> let it all out and then mm-hmm. you're just spent you're just totally done exactly if it is a lot like you just described except it's not voluntary mm-hmm. for us yeah. like like yeah if it was voluntary i don't think it would ever happen yeah right exactly it's not i think meltdowns would be on that list of things that we would like to be doing away like to do away with yes or or get rid of to have a better quality of life that's not to say full like autism cure but there's things that would be nice to have better quality of life yeah well, i think melt- meltdowns would be one of those things i think for a lot of people yeah um, and I think have it, like you said, it's not about, you know, curing autism, but just like, mm-hmm. I always think about this with my son, because like I said, he is nonverbal. And he, I mean, he definitely needs like a lot of support. And I, mm-hmm. I hate when people use terms like, you know, high functioning, low functioning, but I always say me too. Yeah, I, I'm just like, I just want him to be functioning at whatever level is is appropriate mm-hmm. for him. So I'm like, I just want to help him to be like, as functional of a person as he can be. And I'm not mm-hmm. speaking like high, low functioning. I just mean, you know, I want him to be, I want him to mm-hmm. have a better quality of, or the best quality of life that he can, whatever that looks like for him. And I just want to help him facilitate that. I love that. And I actually did use functioning labels for a time when I just didn't know better. So when I was in my <laughs> teens and stuff, I didn't quite know better. And I'm like, yeah, my diagnosis is I'm high functioning. And the more I think about it, and the more I've learned from others in this community too, it doesn't, tell the whole picture it discounts what's actually really hard for me mm-hmm. and so I always say like what levels of support somebody needs I think that's kind of a better way to go about it because when we think about high and low functioning I could tell you two different stories about me on any given day and you'll go that person's high functioning that person's low functioning well what if they're the same person mm-hmm. in a different moment of the day yeah absolutely so I use support needs because I'm like well I might not have as many needs or might as someone like your son who is nonverbal, mm-hmm. like I'm able to live independently, but I might not be able to drive or I might be able to hold down a job, but something else is hard for me. So the things that I need help with in my daily life are definitely different from someone who might also have a coexisting seizure disorder or an intellectual disability or doesn't have a means to communicate. It might be either nonverbal or non-speaking or might not even have assistive communication in their life. So I think when we think about support, it's what does this person need to, like you said, be able to function at a level that they can? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or, or at least give them a quality of like that they're happy. Cause I think that's what really matters. And I think at the end of the day, I'm not a parent, but I think all parents want their kids to be happy and healthy. Oh, yeah. So it's, it's what can we do to make this person's life as wonderful as possible? So, yes, that's definitely my goal 
that you can be non-speaking and have an amazing life. I have friends who are non-speaking and I'm the first to say they're smarter than I am. (laughs) They are. They type out one letter at a time and they're so full of wisdom. And my friend Barb Rettenbach is one of those people. And she always says that she's just disguised as a poor thinker because she is non-speaking. But the things that she writes just blow me away every single time I read her writing. I am like, you are a genius. Mm -hmm. You are the smartest person I know. You are so full of wisdom and you're so funny. (laughs) And you just like, like you are amazing. And Mm. I think it's something to think about is, and I think that's something that happens a lot when we think about nonverbal people or even just more profoundly disabled autistics is we're like, we tend to discount what they can and can't do. Mm -hmm. So I always think of like, okay, how do we make sure that they're able to be supported, get what they need, and also have a fulfilling life too. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I love that you said that because I feel like that just kind of ties back into that neurodiversity piece is it's like, mm-hmm. just because someone communicates differently than you do doesn't mean that they have anything less to say. Absolutely. Is not speaking is not the same as nothing to say. Yes, totally. Yeah. My, and now he- I think that's something important in neurodiversity, especially because mm-hmm. the more people that criticize it it's like well yeah I do think a lot of activists do sometimes forget about our nonverbal friends or our friends with intellectual disabilities or ADHD or anything else it's not just people with fewer support needs that need neurodiversity mm-hmm. it's all of us yeah and how and how do we and it's something that I grapple with a lot is how do we do better for everybody how do we make sure that this employment disparity for everybody goes away how do we make sure that everybody has access to services when they hit adulthood because adult services are a problem no matter where you are mm-hmm yeah. How do we make sure that when you do turn 18 or age out of public school at 22, whichever comes first, you're not completely left in the dark. Right. And like you said, you know, just having, having those, mm-hmm. those services and support at, at whatever, whatever level you may be at, like having that available to everybody, because obviously, I mean, I think that you're amazing, but not everyone is going to go on to be a lawyer. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> So it's like, and that's a, that's a good thing though. Oh yeah. I think that's a good thing that not everyone's going to go on to be a lawyer. We need all kinds of minds and all kinds of professions and all kinds of spaces in our society. Yes, absolutely. No, I think it's a good thing too. And I I always say like, I feel like within this, this world would be very, this world would be very, very weird if everybody turned out to be a lawyer. That's very true. Very true. We We need those differences. But yeah, I, I feel like, um, in terms of, you know, people on the spectrum, like just finding, finding what is, what is the best, the best fit for them. And I mean, I, like I said, you're, you're an amazing lawyer and I'm, I'm just proud of you not even knowing you because I Thank feel you. like, yeah, well, I just feel like a, a win for one is a win for all. That's how I, feel. that's how I feel. I feel the same way. And I say, I said it this morning to someone else is when one of us moves up, we all move up. Yes. That's totally how, and, and it's like, then, you know, I, I love that you're, you're getting more media attention. Cause it's like, just getting as as much as we can just like saturate the market <laughs> like I think that that is like the way to do it because we need to just like get the word out that like you know autism doesn't look like one thing it doesn't sound like one thing it doesn't act like one thing it's it's a whole spectrum of just people and I think uh-huh. it's so important to remember that and I think that you educating people and like I said like getting getting media attention I I just I'm like I said I'm just proud of you not even knowing you because I think that what you're doing is incredible. Thank you. It's been a very fun adventure the last couple of months, but really being in advocacy for the last couple of years in probably the better part of my life at this point, almost, almost half my life. Mm-hmm. It's been very, very fun, but the last couple of months have definitely been something else altogether with getting sworn into the bar and going viral and all that. But it, I'm glad that I'm able to get the message out and help propel conversation in the right direction at a larger scale. Oh, yes, definitely. No, I feel like I just went to like a mastermind class talking to you just now. I feel like you have so many just like amazing because I know I mean, like, like I said, I am I'm still learning all the time. And I feel like as a parent, it's interesting mm-hmm. to to learn from other parents, but it's so interesting to learn from individuals themselves because there are things that like, like you said, before you mm-hmm. use terms like high functioning, low functioning, until you know that, you know, something may or may not be, you know, the appropriate way to say it, you just don't know. Mm-hmm. And hearing exactly. someone, yeah, hearing someone articulate it the way that you just have, I feel like, like I said, mm-hmm. I just feel like I learned so much listening to you. You learn, I feel like I learn a lot from other people on the spectrum all the time. There's things I do and don't disagree with 
that things I do and don't agree with that seems to be normal or not. But I think everyone has their own version of being on the spectrum. Everyone experiences autism differently. And also everyone has different needs and different places that they take up in this conversation too. So mm-hmm. I do think it's a very valuable learning experience. I mean, even at first I'm like, I don't know how I feel about this, but the more time that goes on, I'm like, I think I know how I feel. And I think I know what needs to be done because if you spend a lot of time online, you'll realize that there seems to be very different camps of people Oh, yeah. in autism politics and stuff. And I, I always feel like I'm somewhere in the middle. I love parents. I love professionals. Mm-hmm. I love neurodiversity. I think that we all want the same thing. It's how do we get there as a group? Yeah. So I try, like... I try to come from the community of I want everyone to be together as one community because we are one community. We're all on the same side. Yes. I think that we just have this infighting that makes it not that way that it makes it appear differently. But all of us want this greater acceptance. All of us want this greater understanding. Yes. Whether or not that means you want a cure, whether or not that means you want some more adult services, whether or not that means you want education to be better, whatever niche that you or you want different therapies available or you want different alternatives, whatever it is, we all want the same thing at the end of the day. Absolutely. Totally. That was something that before I started the podcast, I didn't even realize, like, I knew there was like some controversial topics, like obviously like vaccines is always gonna be a hot button topic, which Mm -hmm. we talk about. But like, kind of like how you're saying there is like, there's so many of these like little controversies, like within the autism community that like, you know, like, oh, if you support this side, like you're wrong. Or if you support that side, you're wrong. Exactly. At the end of the day, we're we're all really fighting for the same thing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Exactly. Like, there are people who'll be like, how do you feel about whatever? How do you feel about this thing or that thing? I'm like, well, every kid's different. Take it. There's criticism on both sides of mm-hmm. it. Make your own decision. Make your decision. I'm not trying to be push. I'm not really pushing an agenda other than to do better and things that the numbers don't lie. Yes. That's how I feel is the numbers don't lie about employment. They don't lie about the women. Mm-hmm. They don't lie about why that we're failing as a system and that we can be doing a lot better and that we don't have. And even when I look at lawyers, there's less than there's about half of 1% of lawyers with disabilities that are disclosing. So there's a problem there too. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I, I love data. I love numbers. And I think all the time the numbers aren't lying. Mm-hmm. There's something in these numbers that shows what needs to be done. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You, like you said, you can't really, you can't really fight with the numbers. That's very true. Well, I think even, and you can't please, and you can't please everyone either with your own personal beliefs, but I do also am very excited that I think we're on the brink of something great, especially with neurodiversity as a form of diversity. I think people listening to what people on the spectrum have to say is a huge step forward. I think it, all these victories move slowly, but they come. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think so too. I think that, like I was saying before, as much as we can just like get the word out, everyone sharing their stories and just making autism more. I mean, I know like acceptance and awareness is such like a that's another controversy right there Um, I don't consider it controversial but I'm also very pro acceptance because I think everyone is cocktail party aware yes they might they might not be aware of your individual experience but as a concept I think we're past awareness I think that's a really good way to say it cocktail party aware I love that that's how I feel like it is you mentioned autism oh yeah I know someone my brother's cousin somebody cool, that's great. You're aware. You know what autism is. You've heard of it. But that doesn't mean you're aware of your individual experience or my individual experience. Mm -hmm. So the fact that everyone's at least cocktail party aware, as I like to say, that's why I do think we're at this point of acceptance is, okay, you know what it is. You know that people have this condition. Mm -hmm. You know that we have different brains. How are you going, how are we going to move a step forward and make things better and not just focus April on ribbons of puzzle pieces and fundraisers? (laughs) How are we going to actually move a little bit forward, move the needle? Yeah. So we're not just having the same tired dribble every year of, yeah, you should be aware. Right. Exactly. That's how I, that's how I feel personally, is that if we just keep spinning our wheels about awareness, we're not really going to get too far. I, I, I agree with you to a certain extent. I did do like a bonus episode where I talked about like my own personal stance on awesome awareness, because to me, like awareness and acceptance really do kind of go hand in hand because mm-hmm. like you said, that cocktail party awareness is one thing and like knowing you know, that autism exists in this world. But I think where the acceptance really comes into play is it's kind of like how we were saying, you know, if you see someone having a meltdown or having a more difficult behavior, if you're not aware that that is also a part of autism and autism isn't just like the kid on atypical who, you know, oh. is big for me. 
I have so many feelings about atypical. We can have a whole other episode of me disconstru- okay, well, deconstructing how I feel about media. We'll, we'll we'll have you come back and we'll talk about it. we'll talk about that. Oh, <laughs> oh, we can have we can have a whole other masterclass. Well, yeah, we'll do a, we'll do a part two. But that to me is like that's also part of awareness is just like building on that awareness and not and, and having more than just that cocktail party awareness where it's like there's a deeper meaning to awareness and like really mm-hmm. understanding what autism encompasses. And I think from there, that's when that acceptance piece can really come into play. Absolutely. I think it's one step at a time. Yeah. And I think we we will get to where we want to be. Yes, I totally, I totally agree with you. Oh my goodness. Okay. Well, yeah, we're definitely gonna have to plan for part two. <laughs> Amen. You tell me when and I will be back. Oh my gosh, Haley, you're amazing. Well, I just have to say again, thank you so much for, for coming on the pod, for chatting with me, for teaching me so much. I know that my listeners are going to feel the same way after listening to you. Um, but just again, you are like genuinely just an incredible person and the things that you are doing are amazing. And from an autism mom like me, seeing people like you, like making change in a real way, in a really impactful way, I I am just so thankful. Thank you. Thank you so much for your kind words. And thank you for having me. And if anyone wants to continue to follow along with my journey as well, HaleyMoss.net and say hi to me on social media. Yes. I I, I just have to throw this in too. I reach out to like everyone and their mom or dad connected in the autism community and I'm like hey come on the podcast and I hear back from a lot of people but a lot I totally don't I'm like oh I'm, I'm gonna send I'm gonna send Haley Moss a message and we'll just see what happens and you got like right back to me I run all the stuff I've I mean this is my fun job that's what I always joke lawyering might be my real job but autism and getting to talk about it's my fun job well I just so appreciate that so I yeah because like I said I, I reach out to a lot of people and I often don't hear back so I was thrilled to hear back from you and even more thrilled to actually have you on the podcast so thank you and yes everybody go go follow Haley she is as you just heard incredible thank you so much you were the best oh you're so sweet okay well we will talk soon thanks Haley absolutely thank you so much okay bye Bye. Okay. Well, I hope you enjoyed listening to my conversation with Haley. I am just in awe of Haley. I think that she is incredible and so smart. Like I said in the episode, I felt like I had like taken a master class <laughs> with her. She just, she completely blew me away. Um, and it was really cool for me to find out that I am a part of neurodiversity. So I, I just thought that was amazing. And as you know, someone who is a part of a already neurodiverse family, I just love that we are, you know, even more beautifully diverse at this point. So that was just really cool to find out. Um, and again, I just, I'm, I'm so appreciative of Haley for coming on the podcast and just for all the amazing work she is doing within the autism community. And yeah, so definitely look out for part two with Haley because we'll be doing that for sure. So again, if you want to connect with me, you can find me on Facebook at Adventures in Autism Podcast or on Instagram at Adventures in Autism Pod. Um, or you can email me at Adventures in Autism 2018 at yahoo.com. Again, I love to hear from you guys, whether you just want to say hi or you have a story that you'd like to share on the podcast, definitely reach out, let me know. And that is all for today, but stay tuned for next week. Thanks, guys.